Yesterday, um, we had a day of, uh, of prayer, and Steve Wiley, in the third session, just came and encouraged us and said, look, it says in the Bible, everyone brings a gift um, when, they, when they come, or a, a hymn or a spiritual song, and he's encouraging and exhorting us to do that. And I guess it really, it really helped. People did press in after that, and people then were singing out, and, and God came, and it, the whole meeting kind of pivoted on that point when people began to press into what, what they got. And there's, uh, there's always a thing, isn't there, of, of pressing in, pressing into God. Jesus says in, um, in, in Mark, wait, it doesn't say Jesus says it actually, in, in Mark 5, um, it says a large crowd followed Jesus and pressed around him. And uh, I guess people wanted to be there. They wanted to be in with where Jesus was. They were pressing in. Um, a bit like a, a, a stadium gig or whatever. You, people often want to be at the front and they run to the front and they press in and they, they don't mind being crushed because they want to be near where the action is. And I guess it's just good to be, to, to be encouraged to press in to God. Um, we can press in in a physical way. I'm, obviously, Jesus isn't down the front here and not at the back, but you can, you can almost physically press in. People, people say, yeah, I'm coming today. I'm, want, I'm keen. I'm wanting to be here. I'm, I'm, I don't want to be like at the back. Others might come and just feel... Oh, I'm not, I'm not too bothered. I'll just, I'll just sort of sit near the back or at the back and lounge back. I'm not saying if you're sitting near the back, you're not, you're not pressing into God. Don't hear me wrong on this, because it's not just a physical thing, but I just want to encourage and exhort us to press into what God has got for us. He's got so much. That's nothing to do with what I wanted to preach today. That's just, <laughs> that's just an added bonus. We're actually going to look at Matthew chapter 5. So, if you've got a Bible with you, you might want to... Uh, Turn your Bibles uh, to Matthew and chapter 5. If you haven't got a Bible, we have got some spares. And so put your hand up if you would like one given to you. And they'll come out and, uh, and be handed to you. That's great. The words will appear on the screen behind me as well. Um, so you can, you can follow, I would have thought, most of uh, the Bible references that I mentioned up there. So Matthew chapter 5, we'll, we'll read verses 1 to um, 12, and then we'll, we'll focus in on one specific verse. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right. We've, uh, we've spent a few weeks when I've been preaching the last few times. Um, looking at these, these verses called the Beatitudes. Um, and uh, this is what Jesus, uh, be- beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, really, as Jesus uh, goes up on the mountainside and teaches his disciples. And um, we've seen so far that these are not um, kind of entrance requirements to the kingdom of God. They're not what God is looking for uh, in order for people to follow him. Well, I, I want the people to follow me. He's not saying who, who are poor in spirit and are meek and who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They, they don't get in and others don't. Um, neither are they kind of optional extras. So if we're following God, we, we don't say, oh, well, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a particularly merciful person. 
but um, you know, I, I am pure in heart, so there you go. Not, not too bad, is it, really? No, uh, God is wanting to produce these kind of characteristics and qualities in everyone who follows him. And he is doing that, and to different extents, we will all be these things. So it's important to look at these, not to feel condemned. Oh, I don't think I match up to that. Uh, maybe God doesn't love me. Um, but to be encouraged that this is what God is wanting to make us into and is making us into increasingly as a people. Uh, Hannah was saying earlier today, wasn't she, uh, that when we encounter God, he changes us. He changes Zacchaeus. And he changes us when we meet with him as well. So our, our attitudes before we meet with God are very different to our attitudes after we meet with God. Who we are before we meet with God is very different to the person that we are after we've met with God. So we're going to look at uh, verse 5 today. Um, because we've looked at poor in spirit and those who mourn, we're going to look at this verse. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, straight away we get this word meek, and we can encounter problems here, because meek is a much misunderstood word. Um, it doesn't get used very much these days. You don't get many people going around talking about meekness. Um, and uh, I guess as a Christian, you might hear it in different contexts as well and not understand what it means. Um, I first came across this word meek, I don't know how many people this is, this is true for, in a prayer. Um, and this is a prayer that my mum used to pray for me and encouraged me to pray um, every night when I went to bed uh, for the first uh, 18 years of my life. Now, <laughs> um, which was gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Have you, uh, uh, how many people know this, this uh, prayer? Okay, well, some of you are in for a treat this morning. Um, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Um, and um, I didn't actually understand what the word meek... In fact, actually, I didn't understand much of the prayer at all. I got well confused. That, this is a bit of a diversion. I got well confused by, um, by a bit of this prayer. Because it went like this. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child. Pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee. Okay, I didn't understand the last word, suffer me to come to thee. Didn't get that at all. Didn't understand what meek meant. Uh, the one bit that I thought I, 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 I was kind of got something about was the line, pity my simplicity. But it only went to show how simple I actually was. Because I didn't quite get it quite right. You know, like sometimes when you're listening to songs and you get the lyrics a bit mi- mist- mi- mixed up. So it was like that with that line. So I thought that the, the prayer was, pity mice, <laughs> implicity. And I was thinking, right, I've got to pity mice who are living in this place called Plicity. I've never heard of it, but it, it can't be a very good place. So, you know, we, we're going to pity these mice. living. And honestly, I, I thought that was the line for years and years and years and years. Pity mice in Plicity. People talk about preachers putting the fear of hell in people. I had the fear of Plicity put in me. God, don't let me go to Plicity. Those mice, they hate it. my poor mum she tried her best with this prayer (laughs) but uh, gentle Jesus meek and mild we can kind of see Jesus as as meekness and mild gentle Jesus meek and mild this this kind of childish thing this kind of soft wet image really just for someone for children so we can think that a meek person is is at best some kind of placid kind of easygoing sort of person um, who wouldn't hurt a fly. Um, I, I guess at worst, someone who, who, who's a bit of a 
Mr. Bean type character, very indecisive, maybe with a limp handshake. Um, you know, just a bit of a, oh, I don't really want to you know, be around you or know you because just, just nothing much about them, sort of meek and mild and insipid. And, um, you know, that's the sort of image I guess some people have of Christians. But then we can react against that and say, well, as Christians, of course, we don't believe in the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus wasn't meek and mild. Well, the problem with that is the Bible says that he is meek. The Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1 uh, describes Jesus as being, as being meek. It says, uh, Paul says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. So Christ is, Jesus is described as being meek and gentle. So we need to understand what this word meek means. It's not just kind of some soft, soppy thing. Um, in fact, it's, it's not a, a soft thing at all. Um, but what does it mean to be meek or, um, or, or, or humble in some times? You'll see in the, as we're looking through, if we're looking at the NIV, often the word humble is used, uh, where other Bible versions may use um, the word meek. They're a bit interchangeable. Anyway, what does it mean to be meek? There are a number of meek people in the Bible who you can, who you can talk about, um, and we haven't got time to look at all of those. We're going to look at the two who are actually described as being meek. Um, and uh, they are Jesus, who we've looked at, and Moses. Moses is the other one. Now, of all the people in the Bible, Moses isn't the one who you would think as, as, as kind of a bit soft and wimpy, is he? He's not that sort of person. Um, let's, let's just have a look, just to, just to prove the point. Um, he, he killed an Egyptian um, for, for being harsh with, a, uh, with a, one of his people, with a Hebrew. Uh, so one of the first things we read about is where Moses actually kills this Egyptian. Um, so to, to, go, to start off early on in Exodus, I think that's in Exodus, um, Exodus 3, um, verse 11, he says, He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Um, so not particularly a sort of soft, indecisive sort of person. That's right at the start of Exodus. Um, he, he gets even stronger, I would say, um, after, after he's been given the, the Ten Commandments. And we see in Exodus 32, um, he comes down with these two, um, two big stone tablets um, with, the, with the Ten Commandments written on them. And he comes down to the bottom of the mountain and he sees that the Israelites, his people, uh, God's people, have, been, have, have made an idol, a golden idol, a golden calf. And he's furious about it. And in, uh, in verse 19, it says, When Moses approached the camp, this is Exodus 32, When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they'd made, and he burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder and scattered it on the water, and he made the Israelites drink it. And, nice. And he said to, uh, it gets worse actually, he said to, this is, we don't often read these bits of the Bible, because we kind of like skirt over that bit. We'll get to him smashing the tablets, that'll do. <laughs> we'll not go further. No, he's ground this into, into powder, he's scattered, right, you're going to drink it now. And then he says to Aaron, what made you do this? And, and then it says, um, in verse 25, um, Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control and become a laughingstock. Um, in their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and he said, whoever's for the Lord, come to me. 
And all the Levites rallied to him. So he's kind of standing there, right, whoever's on God's side, come up here, come to the front. So people come to the front, some don't. And then he says to the, the ones who've come, he says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. And the Levites did as Moses had commanded. And that day, 3,000 of the people died. This is his own people. He's thinking, this has got out of control. So he says, who's, who's with God? Who's on God's side? Okay, well, you guys aren't then. Right. You're dying. And he gets the others to kill them. Moses was a meek man. We'll see where it says that in a minute. Not a soft guy. You know, it's hard to, so, you know, it's quite disturbing. You've got to battle and wrestle with these passages. What's that about? I'll let you battle and wrestle with it a bit. <laughs> Because it's the word of God. Wrestle with it. Anyway, we'll, we'll, I'll give you some clues later on. Um, <laughs> but let's look at this passage where Moses is described as being meek. In Numbers 12 and verse 3. What's happening here? Numbers 12 and verse 3. Situation is, there's a bit of an argument going on. And there's Moses, and there's Miriam, and there's Aaron. Aaron's his brother. Okay, it says... Numbers 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron began to talk about Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he'd married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And it says, and the Lord heard this. So what's going on is there's an, there's an argument going on. Moses, Aaron and Miriam, Miriam are having a go at Moses. And they're having a go at him for two reasons. They're having a go at him, firstly, because he's, um, because he's married uh, someone from a different ethnic background. He's married a Cushite. And secondly, they were feeling that what's so special about Moses? Why is he the top guy? Why is he the leader? Maybe there's a bit of jealousy going on. I'm sure there was, especially with Aaron, maybe. Aaron is the older brother, and he's seeing the younger brother getting, being the spokesman for God and being the leader of the people. And he's saying, well, what's so special about you? What is so special? Okay, so um, we, we see that there's this jealousy going on. Now, the next thing it says in verse 3, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. I always, I always think this is quite a funny verse as well. Because the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. So Moses has written this. He just thinks he's going to add this. Now Moses was a very humble man. The most humble man in the whole earth. <laughs> what? <laughs> For you to say you're the most humble man in the whole earth. <laughs> God. But again, we need to get an idea of what the word humble means. Although I'm not going to argue with Moses at this point. Because he's a bit of a scary guy. <coughs> The word humble literally means bowed down, bowed down. And what it means is, is to, be, to, be, to subordinate, to lower your own personal interests to those of God and his cause. So in other words, um, we, we lower ourselves to make God greater. That's what being humble really means. It means, you know, putting ourselves, making ourselves lower so that God can be exalted. So we get songs that we sing um, here, for example, like, we bow down and confess you are Lord in this place. So it's basically saying, we are making ourselves lower because you are going to be made greater. Another one that we sing is, um, be lifted up. 
isn't it? Be lifted up. It's singing to God. Be lifted up as we bow down. So in other words, uh, there's another one that we don't sing, I think, which is, is you must increase, I must decrease. Right? It's that kind of idea. That's what being humble really means. Okay? You can be humble and, and tell the truth. You know? So Moses is, is saying that he was the most humble man in the whole earth. He, he put his own interests down for the sake of God's. He wasn't interested in his own profile. He wasn't interested in himself. He wasn't interested in being the top man. He wasn't interested in what people thought of him. He was interested in what people thought of God. He was interested in glorifying God. He was interested in upholding God's word. Which is why he, he, he killed, he, he had all those people killed. Because he was saying, look, if you're for God, come to me. Come over here and, and, and come, come over to me if you're with God. And the ones who didn't, he's like, well, what are you about then? God's called you as his people, but you're not for God. You're worshipping this golden calf. You want to go off and we're not having that. He was zealous for God's word. He wasn't doing it because he wanted to be the big man. He wanted to assert himself. He wanted to show how hard he was. No, he was doing it for God's glory. That's what being humble is. And it's not about yourself. So what happens here... What happens here is that Moses is having his own personal integrity questioned by Aaron and Miriam. They're having a go at him, you know. Well, they're having a go at him about his wife. They're having a go at him about, well, as the Lord only spoken through Moses, there's a bit of jealousy going on. Now, Moses, at this point, does not react. Knowing what we know about Moses, we might think, Oh, you, won't, you don't want to say anything like that about Moses. He's got a temper on him. He'll be like, ah, that's it, right, we're going to kill you. Oh, you know. No, he's not. He doesn't even say anything. He doesn't say anything. Because they're not attacking God directly. They're not saying, uh, they're not slandering him. They're not worshipping other idols. It's himself that they're attacking. And, he, and, and Moses is pointing out, he's a humble man. He's putting himself down. He's not, he's, not, he's not that bothered about himself because he knows that God will justify. God will justify. And so, at this point, God does. He does it straight away. In verse 4, At once the Lord said to Moses, Aram and Miriam, Come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. And so the three of them came out. And it says, Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent, summoned Aram and Miriam, When they both stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. Uh, When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this isn't true of my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And then it says, the anger of the Lord burned against them. And he left them. So he's, God is saying, you to Aaron and Miriam, you should not have done that. You should not have spoken against the one I've chosen. You shouldn't have said, oh, how come Moses gets the top jobs and we don't get the top jobs? God's saying, it's me who's chosen that. It's my choice. It's nothing to do with you. How dare you speak against him? Now, God justified Moses. Moses didn't. Moses did not say a word. He didn't come back. Because he was meek. 
because he was humble. That word where it says Moses was a very humble man, the most humble in the whole earth, in the ESV, it says meek. Moses was a very meek man, the most meek man in the whole earth. Okay? That's what being meek is about. Being meek is about not coming back and having to prove yourself and having to justify yourself and having to stick up for yourself and do all of that. That's what the world would do, but that's not what a meek person would do. That's not what Moses did. He let God do the justifying. What about Jesus? Jesus, again, is someone who's been described as meek. But again, he doesn't come across as a wimp. He doesn't come across as wet. So John chapter 2, early on in the gospel, he goes to the temple. John chapter 2 and verse 12, uh, 13. When it was time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cat and cattle, sheep and doves, others sitting at tables, exchanging money. This is in the temple of God. This is where God is supposed to be worshipped. People are, people are making money out of it. They're, they're using it as a marketplace almost. And it says, so he made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the co- coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables to those who sold doves. He said, get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is a strong, passionate man. He's violent. He's turning tables over. He's getting a whip. He's whipping people. He's driving them out. He's saying, how dare you? He's shouting at them. He's not being nicey-nicey. Why is he doing it? Because zeal for your father's house will consume me. He's passionate about God's glory. He's passionate about the worship of God. It's God who he's upholding. And he will defend that at all costs. And he will, he will be a strong and even violent. Because it's zeal for the Father. It's not about himself. When it comes to violence and accusations against himself, we see a very different Jesus. Jesus, in his, uh, the hours and days leading up to his death, gets arrested, he gets beaten, he gets whipped. Does he come back? Does he express this violence and anger and passion? No. Isaiah 53 describes him as being led like a sheep to the slaughter. He was silent. One Peter, Peter describes it as well. And Peter obviously saw some of what was happening. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21 says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He could have done, couldn't he? He knew he was the Son of God. He knew his heavenly Father. He could call on angels. He could say, you're messing with the wrong man. You'll see. You'll see what's going to happen. You're just messing with the wrong person. God is going to come and he's going to sort you out. He doesn't say any of it. He's silent. Why? Because, um, verse 23, instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
And it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he, we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his, his wounds you have been healed. For, like, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He does it because he trusts in God. He trusts that God is the one who's going to justify. He, 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 he knows that God is the righteous judge. And so he puts his own interests last. And he puts God's interests and those of other people, those who he knows he's going to die to save, second. He dies on the cross. He endures the pain. He endures the suffering. He endures endures the humiliation and the torture and the seeming weakness because he knows he will be justified. And that is real strength. There's real strength there not to come back at someone. You know, he endured taunts. People said, um, people, the, 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 the chief priests gathered round him and they said, you know, he saved others. He saved others, but he can't save himself. They're t- taunting him. They're mocking him. But do you know what? They spoke the truth. They were saying it because they thought it showed Jesus' weaknesses. Oh, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Yet Jesus' strength meant that he saved others. And because he was saving others, he couldn't save himself. Oh yeah, Jesus physically could have saved himself. He could have got off that cross. He could have called on his angels to release him. He could have been there. He could have, he could have said, look, there you go. This is the strength that I have. This is the power that I have. This is God. I am God's son. I'm God. He didn't do it. Oh yeah, it would have been impressive. People would have said, oh, wow. And they might have followed him in a sort. But you know what? They wouldn't have believed in him in the way that we can believe in him. We can believe in him because we believe in far more than that. We believe him that he died for our sins. That he saved us from the punishment that we deserved. That by enduring the cross and the suffering and the torture, we could be set free. He saved others. He saved us. And because of that, he couldn't save himself. He couldn't do it because otherwise he wouldn't have saved us. He put us us first above him. He put God's will first above him. God Oh, you know, I know what's coming, God, he says in the garden. I know what's coming. If there's any other way, take this cup away from me. But then he quickly says, no, but not my will. Not about me, but your will. It's about your will. And he submits to the Father. That's meekness. Jesus meekly going to the cross is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of amazing strength. It's amazing strength. So what about us? Because Peter says, this is an example for you. And Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. This is who God is making us to be, a meek people. What about us? Because we're able to now live for righteousness. Those of us who know God, have been forgiven by God, have come into his his kingdom, of coming to a relationship with him, we're now able to live for righteousness. We're able to turn away from sin. In other words, we can follow Jesus' example. 
We couldn't have done it otherwise. Everything in us would have been shouting out, no, we're not going to follow that example. You look around you in the world, the world does not follow this example. The world doesn't put God first. The world puts self first. The world doesn't say, I'm not going to justify it. If someone's attacking me, I'm not going to come back and strongly defend myself. You just look at the, at the political debates that have been going on recently. And that's just one example of what we're all like. It's not politicians worse than anyone else. But someone attacks you, you'll come back. You'll attack them. You want to assert yourself. You want to put yourself first. You want to make sure that you are the top dog. But that isn't Jesus' way. That isn't the kingdom way. James puts it in his usual blunt way in his letter. James chapter 1 and verse 19. He says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger doesn't bring about the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly or meekly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Be slow to speak. Be quick to listen. Be slow to come angry. So, we're forced to examine ourselves, aren't we? We're forced to examine ourselves. What about us? What about us? How do we respond when someone brings an accusation against us like they did against Moses. Someone comes and says something. Now, whether it's true or not, how do we respond? Is our first response to become angry, to become defensive? To say, oh, I'm going to come back at you for that. I don't like what you're saying. I'm going I'm to argue it and, it'll, you know, and it escalates. Is that our first response? Or is it like James says, that we're quick to listen. Oh, I want to hear. I want to hear. There might be something in this that God is speaking to me about. Maybe God wants to bring something to my attention through this person. Whether their intentions are right or not, actually, sometimes people can come at you with, with motives of, of wanting to put you down, of wanting to, to harm you. But God might be using that to speak to you. And so we don't come back and just defend ourselves if it's about us. We're quick to listen. God, are you saying anything to me about this? We're slow to speak. We hold our tongue. I'm going to speak. I'm not going to come straight back. And we're slow to become angry. How are we like that? How am I? It's the question I've been asking myself this week. How are we, how are you, when this happens? If we're meek, we won't just react angrily and defensively. We'll listen. We'll go to God and say, God, is there anything in this? And if, there, if, if the accusations are totally groundless, then we trust in our God to uphold us. We don't need to do it. We don't need to defend ourselves. Because God will defend us. Now, this is defending ourselves. Not defending God. This is defending ourselves. However, it's worth pointing out as well that if you are one of those who is bringing correction, if you're going to someone and you're thinking, I've, I, I've seen something in someone and I need to point it out. So it's not, it's not necessarily in a, in, a, in a bad way. 
It's not you wanting to get one over on them, hopefully. But, um, but you're thinking, I just need to confront this issue. There's something there. It just needs some, some input, some correction. How do we do that? We do that in a meek way as well. Galatians chapter 6. Um, Paul is explaining that. And he uses the word, I think, uh, gentle. But again, other versions use the word meek. Um, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently or meekly. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Okay, so we need to go, and if we're bringing correction to someone, we need to do it humbly or gently or meekly. Not looking to assert ourselves, not in any way looking to say, look, I've got this sorted, and I've seen that you haven't got this sorted, so really you need to just come up to speed a bit. No, you go knowing, oh God, I know, I know I could be tempted in this as well. I know I'm vulnerable, and I'm wanting to restore them to God. I'm wanting to restore them to a godly way. But I need to just be, be, be you know, gentle and, 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 say it, and say it lovingly and with the right motives and fully aware that I could, I could easily be the one in this position. I could easily be the one where they are. It, it, we're not immune from temptation. We're not just going and forcing our opinions on someone feeling that they need to listen to who we are. The reason for speaking correction to someone's life is to bring God's glory and to maintain what the Bible talks about, not just to suit our own preferences. And so being meek doesn't mean that we're soft on the word of God. It doesn't mean that we don't, we don't bring this correction. Whether we're bringing it or receiving it, meekness is about seeking God's interest. And the temptation can be that we, that we, that we look to justify ourselves and we're quick to come back about when we're attacked but when, when God is dishonored and when, and when, and when someone is in, in, in sin and is fallen away from God or whatever, we can kind of think, oh, I don't want to get too involved. I don't want to, I don't want, I'll just leave it. I don't, it could be an awkward conversation. I'll leave them to it. And that's the opposite of what we should be doing. G.K. Chesterton has, has points this out. He says, what we suffer today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition, in other words, it's about, we should be modest about our own ambition. He says, and modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. And this has been reversed. Nowadays, the part of the man that a man does assert is exactly the part that he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. We're on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe. In other words, he's saying, we're soft on truth. We're, we're kind of woolly on it. Oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, people can do what they want. Moses wasn't soft on truth. Jesus wasn't soft on truth. That's where you see their strength. But when it comes to yourself... That's where we're meant to be humble and meek. So if someone is in sin, if someone needs correction, we bring it. Luke 17 and verse 3 says that. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And it says do that if he does it seven times in a day. Forgive him. 
But if your brother sins, rebuke him. And, and people often say, oh, well, surely, surely Jesus also talks about, you know, don't go removing the speck of dust from your brother's eye when there's a great big plank in your own eye. And, th- and people use that to say, we shouldn't get involved. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be going and picking out, something, correcting something in someone else because we're aware that we're probably just as bad. Well, yeah, that's what Jesus is saying. But he doesn't stop there, does he? In Luke chapter 6, 41, he doesn't stop at saying that. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Yes, examine yourself. Don't just look at other people critically. Look critically at yourself. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrites. Sort it out yourself. He says, first, take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It doesn't say leave the speck in your brother's eye. He says, examine yourself. Get right with God. Search yourself. Say, God, is there anything in me that you want to deal with? And then for God's glory, there'll be times when you need to address things in other people. Humbly, gently, for God's glory, not for your own. That's what being meek is about. That's what Jesus is making us to be a people. A people who are zealous for God and not wanting to seek exaltation for ourselves. And what does Jesus promise the meek? He promises them the earth. They will inherit the earth. When Jesus was speaking this, he wasn't just speaking to just a political vacuum. He wasn't just speaking... He was speaking to a a group of people at a certain time in history. He was speaking to a people whose land had been taken over by invaders, by conquerors, by the Romans... They were desperate to get the Romans out of there. They were looking for the Messiah. That's what they thought the Messiah was. They thought the Messiah would be the one who was going to come and kick the Romans out and politically defeat them, take the land back. That's what they wanted, the land back for themselves. And they were going to do that by force. We are the people who should be in this land. We are the ones who, so we're going to assert ourselves. We're going to fight for it. And Jesus says, no. God will bring it about. God will justify. You don't need to fight for your rights. You don't need to do it. That's not the sort of Messiah that Jesus was. So when he's saying the meek will inherit the earth, that would have been a shocking thing for people to hear. Because he's saying, be meek. And you'll inherit the earth. You'll get the land. You'll not only get this land, the whole earth. It's very easy to be angry and bitter and tempted to take it back by force, but that isn't the way to be. So he came into Jerusalem as king, but he rode in on a donkey, showing that he was meek. He was no revolutionary who was going to take the city by force. He doesn't come to inflict suffering on people, but he comes to endure suffering. So that others won't have to endure suffering. And even his disciples didn't understand it. Even when he's raised from the dead and he meets with them again in uh, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, they say to him, um, 
They say to him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's like, okay, God, okay, Jesus, you've done all this teaching and everything. You've died. You've raised to life again. Fantastic. You have shown that you are superior. You've shown that you've got the power of God in you. You are the Messiah. You are God's person. Now, are you going to kick these Romans out? That's what they were saying. And he's saying, and Jesus is going, no, it's not. That's not what it's about. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And at that point, then, when the Holy Spirit does come, that's when they get it. That's when they get it. Not until then. Because they think it's all about a political thing. They thought Jesus is going to come back all guns blazing. Apart from there probably weren't any guns at the time. But that's what they thought. But it was through his suffering and death on the cross that the kingdom was established. Do you know, it doesn't make sense to people. If you don't know God, if you, aren't, if you haven't come into that point where you've, where you've met with him and you've had your sins forgiven and you've repented and, and you've understood that Jesus' death was for you, if you don't know God, if you're just in the world, none of this makes sense. Why wouldn't you fight back? Why wouldn't you stand up for yourself? I was talking to a guy the other day at my, at my kids' swimming lessons, and he was, I've been getting to know him over the last year. He was talking about how his workplace is all about dog-eat-dog. It's all about making sure you are top and putting other people down and being nasty to them and cruel to them and bullying. And he says, you've just got to make sure you do it. You've got to be, you've got to be number one. And he'd seen something in his daughter or some, where she was being kind to someone and he said, oh, you know, it made me realize that it's not all like that. Maybe, that. maybe life's not supposed to be like that. I'm thinking, yeah, but she, she will be like that because that's what the world is like eventually and outside of God. But what he'd begun to see was there's a different way. He'd begun to see, actually, it's not all that bad because he, he knew the way of the world is not good. But that's what it is. It doesn't make sense to people. It doesn't make sense. We might not understand what is happening in our lives at any given point. We might not understand why things are happening personally to us. We might not understand why um, we've been overlooked in our job. We might not understand why we've been overlooked in our family or we thought badly of in our family or what's happened in our family situation. We might not understand why things have happened in church life the way they have in the past or even currently. We might not understand it. But the way to deal with it isn't to put yourself forward, isn't to assert yourself, to justify yourself. That's the way of the world. We don't need to defend our cause and justify ourselves because we know that God will uphold us. Isaiah 41 explains this so well. Isaiah 41 and verse 9, God's saying, I took you from the ends of the earth From its farthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant. I've chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear. I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We can meekly trust in God for our lives, for our situation. We can say we've put ourselves entirely in God's hands 
and other people may slander us. We may be misunderstood. Even people in church may come and bring something to us that we don't like and we feel is attacking who we are and attacking our, you know, the, to the very root of us and we're going to say, but God, I'm going to trust you. If they're wrong, you will justify me. If they're wrong, you will uphold me. If they're right, God, convict me. Speak to me. I want to be like you. That's how we are to be as a meek people. And we can trust that and trust in the promise that we will inherit the earth. There's a promise to all those who submit to God's rule and reign in their life and are faithful that one day Jesus will return. And he will meet his justice. He will bring about justice. Those people who seem to have been getting away with it and, and succeeding and prospering, they will have justice come to them if they haven't given their lives to God and if that's not been taken on Jesus. And then Jesus will rule and reign with us in a new heaven and a new earth. We will inherit the earth. We will inherit a new heaven and a new earth. That is the promise. God will bring it about. And we are to be a people who are passionate for God and his word, zealous. But when it comes to ourselves, who say, no, we're going to bow down. We're not going to argue back. We're not going to fight our corner. We'll fight God's corner. Let's pray.